Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I don't know about the rest of you, but I've been enjoying this study in Mark. We've been 29 weeks now in this study, and we're right at the halfway point. So uh, we've got a little ways to go. But uh, it's been so much good here. It has spoken to my heart. I hope it's helpful to you. Today I want to read the first 21 verses of Mark chapter 8. I want to talk to you on the topic of feeding a multitude again. Let's start reading in verse number 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Father, I pray you'd give us understanding as we look at your word today. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. Help me to teach clearly and accurately and practically. Help me, Father, to not say anything I ought not. and Help me to say anything I should just as boldly as needs to be said. Just speak to our hearts today. Teach us from these wonderful stories in Scripture. Help us to see the application to our own lives. And Lord, if decisions need to be made, if we need to make changes, if we need to uh, act on anything that is said here, I pray you'd help us to do it. And we'll thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I read three different stories there, three separate incidents, and and I would suggest to you this morning that they have something in common. All of them teach us about a particular topic, and that topic is belief or unbelief. Soon we're going to come to chapter 9, and uh, we're going to meet a man in chapter 9 who wanted to believe, who did believe, but he believed in perfectly. And we'll delve into that story more when we get there and read the whole story, but let me just mention the relevant part. 
This morning Jesus said to this man, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I see something similar to that in these passages that we've read this morning. They're all about belief, and they're all about unbelief. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's look, first of all, at this miracle a second time around. The miracle a second time around. Now, some critics of the Bible believe that there was really only one feeding miracle and that uh, this is an error in Scripture to have recorded it a second time. They think that the 5,000 and 4,000 are really one miracle improperly recorded. And, of course, that's nonsense. Or to use a word that I like to use from now from time to time, it's bunk. It's just complete garbage. It's plain from Scripture that the two miracles were separate. If we compare this miracle to the earlier feeding of the 5,000, which was reported back in chapter 6 of Mark, it becomes quite clear. There, there are some similarities between the two. In both cases, there was a very small provision at the start. Uh, in both cases, Jesus employed the very same method. He gave thanks, and he broke the bread, and he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples set it before the people. Uh, we see that in both places. In both cases, we saw the same miracle concerning that breaking and giving. It was something that started and continued. The, 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 the bread and the fish were just multiplied in the creative hands of the, of the Savior. It started and it kept on going. And in both cases, there was an abundance of leftovers. In the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, there was uh, exactly enough for the 12 disciples, 12 baskets full. And in this one, there was seven baskets, but an abundance of leftovers, such that the need of everybody was met and more than, more than met. So there were similarities, but there were also some differences between the two miracles. In this case, the crowd was predominantly Gentile. You remember where he is at this point. He's gone up to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, we saw a couple of weeks ago that he healed the uh, Syrophoenician woman's daughter there. From there, he's gone around the north part of the Sea of Galilee, and he's down in the Decapolis area. We saw him healing a deaf mute the last time we, we talked about this. And he's still pretty much in that area, and so uh, most would say that this probably is predominantly a Gentile uh, crowd that he's with this time. This time we know how long the crowd had been with him. Verse 2 tells us that they had been with him for three days. This time the, 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 the food was not provided by a child in the crowd. Last time you remember there was a young boy that had five loaves and two fishes. That's not the case now. This time the food was provided by the disciples apparently. They said they had it with them. This time there were 4,000 rather than 5,000 plus women and children. And this time, I think the most interesting difference between the two is this time there was different baskets left over. Uh, and actually, this, this particular time it indicates that there was a ridiculous overabundance left over this time. There are two different words for baskets used in the two different miracles. Uh, if you're carrying, if you're looking at the New King James, which is what I'm preaching from here, or probably any of the modern translations, you'll see that it translates it here as large baskets. Did you notice that? Back in the, uh, the in the, uh, the, the the previous miracle, it was just baskets. The Greek word kafanos, used in the earlier miracle, described like a, a little lunch basket. It's a small basket that a lot of people just carried with their daily supplies in it. The word that is used here is spurus, and it usually refers to a basket large enough for a full-grown man to get inside of. 
These seven baskets were the type of baskets that they lowered Paul down over the wall uh, when he was escaping the Jews in Damascus in Acts chapter 9. So while the first miracle resulted in a perfect amount of leftovers, just the amount that the twelve disciples would have needed, here's a lunch for each one of you, just exactly what you need. This miracle resulted in an absurd overabundance of leftovers. There was enough food left over here, literally, literally. We use this phrase all the time, but here it was really true. There was enough left over to feed an army when he was done. So clearly, Scripture is presenting two separate miracles here. There is no error, as some would propose. Believe your Bibles, people. Don't listen to silly critics who try to explain them away. One man said this. He said, the repetition of a nature miracle of feeding 4,000 in Decapolis disturbs some modern critics who cannot imagine how Jesus could or would perform another miracle elsewhere so similar to the feeding of the 5,000 up near Bethsaida. But both Mark and Matthew give both miracles. Distinguish the words for back baskets, kaphanos and spurus. Both make Jesus later refer to both incidents and use these two words with the same distinction. And surely it's easier to conceive that Jesus wrought two such miracles than to hold that Mark and Matthew would have made such a jumble of the whole business. So it's two separate miracles. Believe that. The real question that jumps out at us from this has nothing to do with whether or not this miracle was the same as the feeding of the 5,000. It was not, but that's not the question anyway. The real question is, how do we explain the disciples' incredible lack of understanding here? How do we understand how they could still not have faith? How could they still ask the same questions again? Now, to be perfectly fair... The question they asked in verse number four, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? It's not exactly the same question they asked the previous time. The previous time they said, shall we go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But the implication is the same, isn't it? The implication is the same in both of those. Uh, They thought the thing impossible, and they questioned how it could be done. Now, the first time would seem credible to us. They'd never seen anything like this before. And so we would, uh, we would understand how they could wonder about it. But now they've seen the Lord feed 5,000 to 10,000 people with five loaves and two small fishes, and you'd think they'd have a little bit better understanding the second time around. Wouldn't their understanding be greater? Wouldn't their faith be stronger the second time around? And I think this is the question that permeates the story. And all three of these stories that we've read this morning, it's not how could Jesus do this again, but rather how could anybody, seeing these things, not yet understand and believe. And in all of these stories, I think we see two groups of people who didn't believe in spite of what they saw. The very next little bunch of verses that I read there talks about the Pharisees. They didn't believe. And then the final group of verses that I read talks again about the disciples. They also struggled to believe. So let's look at them for just a few minutes. I, I think that they're, they're both struggling with belief, but for two different reasons. Uh, verses 11 and 12 speaks of the Pharisees, and, and, and it tells us here that the Pharisees simply refused to believe. They simply refused to believe. Now, the Pharisees, if, if you're unfamiliar with that term, they, they were the conservatives of the day with respect to spiritual things. They clung to the law. They were sticklers for keeping every word of it without fail. If you contrast them with the Sadducees of the day, they were just the opposite. The Sadducees were the spiritual liberals of the day. They didn't believe the Bible. They certainly didn't believe the Scriptures in their entirety. They rejected the miraculous. They rejected the supernatural. They specifically didn't believe in the resurrection. 
or in the afterlife. If you think about it, those two groups correspond very, very clearly with the different types of Christianity that we see in our world today. I would say that we are a very conservative, Bible-believing church. We, we believe the Bible. We believe every word of it. We believe it is inerrant and infallible and complete. We accept it as our only rule for faith and practice. We don't hesitate to believe even the most supernatural and fantastic parts. When we read in Genesis that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, we have no trouble believing that. God said it, we believe it. When we read in John that Jesus has gone away to prepare us a place and he will come again to receive us unto himself, we have no trouble believing that Jesus is coming again. When we read in Luke chapter 16 (coughs) that there is a heaven for the saved and a hell for the lost, both of which are literal, real places where men and women will live forever, either in conscious bliss or conscious torment, we have no trouble believing that. There is simply no part of this book we reject. There are those, however, who call themselves Christians, (coughs) who do reject the supernatural, who claim to only accept the ethical teachings of Jesus while rejecting all of the supernatural and the miraculous. And so, even today, we see some similarities between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Christians today. Mark's account says that the Pharisees appeared here to argue and dispute with him and test him. If you go to the account in Matthew, you see the Sadducees were there as well. Both groups were there. Now, to be fair, we we do have some indication in Scripture that some of the Pharisees trusted Christ. Nicodemus comes to mind, and Joseph of Arimathea, and obviously Saul of Tarsus, all examples of Pharisees who did get saved. There is no record ever of a Sadducee being saved uh, in Scripture or believing. But even with the knowledge that some of the Pharisees eventually trusted Christ, we have to recognize, unfortunately, most of them were enemies of him and his ministry, and sought always to discredit his claims and reject any kind of belief in him. And that's what we see here. They sought a sign only to test and discredit him, not because they truly wanted to know, not because they wanted to understand. They were attempting to discredit. That's exactly what it says in verse number 11. The Pharisees came out and began to dispute, argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing So this was a group of people that had already made up their mind. They had already decided they were not going to believe. And their interaction with Christ following this miraculous feeding of the 4,000 demonstrates that. In spite of what they'd seen, they were not going to believe. And here's the part that's instructive to me, and I hope you see this. Jesus' response to their unbelief is very interesting. He simply refused to interact with them. They asked for just one more sign, and he said, no, no more sign would be coming for them. And then in verse number 13, you might want to underline these words in your Bible, he left them and departed. He left them and departed. Matthew adds that he also told them there was one sign coming that would validate once and for all his claims and his identity, and that was the resurrection. If you read the account in Matthew, you see that he said, no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, Matthew 16.4. Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish were a picture, an illustration of Christ's three days and three nights in the earth. It was an allusion to the resurrection. John MacArthur said the, the supreme sign verifying his claim to be Son of God and Messiah was to be his re- resurrection. And so he said, there's only one sign you're going to get, and that's when I rise from the dead. 
But he refused their request, and he walked away from them. Now, I don't know the hearts of, of, of everyone in this room this morning, but if you're one who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ, you need to consider that very, very carefully. The fact is, the same way Jesus walked away from these Christ-rejecting Pharisees, God will eventually reject all unbelievers. It's not a happy thought. It's a dark thought. But it's the truth. God will eventually reject all unbelievers. The finality of that day is seen throughout Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In another place, he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. John said in Revelation 21, The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. From time to time I come across a person who, no matter the evidence, has just already made up their mind and has just already decided that they simply will not believe. And were they, like these Pharisees, to come face to face uh, with, with the king of the universe and watch as he miraculously fed 4,000 people with seven fish or seven pieces of bread and a, a few small fish, they still would refuse to believe. Were they to be set down in the midst of seven large baskets overflowing with this mountain of leftover bread, they would cross their arms and refuse to believe. Such were the Pharisees. And they watched as Jesus turned his back and walked away from them. That's one form of unbelief. But that was not the case with the, with the disciples. The disciples also did not believe. But it was not the same. Their unbelief was of a different sort. If we look at verses 13 through 21, we see that the disciples, they didn't refuse to believe. They just hadn't come to understand yet. The disciples, they were amazing men in, in many ways. Eventually, they would all become giants of the faith. They would take the good news of Jesus Christ to the known world. They were amazing individuals. Some of them would eventually become known as great preachers. One day, soon, Peter would preach a sermon. One sermon, and 3,000 people would come to Christ. As a pastor, I think that's just spectacular. I can just imagine what that would be like. Great preachers. Uh, some of them would become great writers. Some of them would, uh, would, would write books that today make up portions of our New Testament. Matthew, of course, wrote the book. By his name. We're studying Mark, which was written by John Mark, but uh, is believed by most scholars to contain the teachings of Peter. John wrote five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so many of them became writers. And all of them, save John, would eventually die for Christ. These were great men, would eventually become great men. But they were also just men. And at this particular point in their relationship with Christ, they didn't, they didn't just, they just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. As a matter of fact, in this passage, I think they appear, they appear almost comically confused. We've already noted that their initial question was pretty amazing when they would ask again, how are we going to feed these people after they'd already seen it once? But now having not only seen the first miracle, but the second, to ask it on the boat, the things that they said on the boat, it just seems absurd to me. It's ridiculous. Consider verse number 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. 
Now, they had just walked away from seeing Jesus multiply seven loaves into seven monstrous, huge baskets of food, enough to feed 4,000 people and leaving an abundant pile of leftovers that was literally enough to feed a Roman legion. They just watched that. They didn't think to grab any on their way by. They had to walk between all these baskets, and they didn't think to grab any at all. I can't help but scratch my head at that. But then Jesus, whose mind was still on the exchange with the Pharisees and their blatant refusal, said this to the disciples. He said, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, Jesus was talking about sin there. He was talking about sin. In the Bible, the imagery of leaven or yeast is used often, almost always, as an illustration of sin. Paul used it in describing how false teaching spreads like cancer. He said to the Galatians, you ran well who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. He said to the Corinthians, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Matthew's account about this story tells us Jesus used it to describe the false doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. And another time he used it to describe their sin of hypocrisy. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy in Luke chapter 12. So Jesus, whose mind is still on the rejection of the Pharisees, warned the disciples to beware of false teaching. The disciples, whose mind was still on bread, for reasons we can all probably understand, heard the word leaven and assumed he was talking about bread. And even though he had demonstrated twice to them that he could multiply a loaf of bread to provide not only just enough, even more than enough to feed thousands, these 12 men began fretting over their lack of provision of bread. I don't know about you, but I think it's ridiculous. I look at them and I think, how could they be this way? The disciples just didn't get it. Their lack of belief was not like that of the Pharisees. There was no decision to reject here. There was no obstinate refusal to believe what Jesus was saying. These men just did not understand. And in spite of all that they had seen, they still couldn't get their mind around it. And I think about that, and I think it sounds familiar. We can't be too hard on them, can we? Because how many times have we seen the same things in ourselves? How many times have we seen the same lack of understanding in others? I come across people all the time that can't come to grips with the gospel. They've heard it. They've seen how the lives of others have been changed by it. They've heard friends and family witness to the truth of it. They may have sat through multiple sermons and, and multiplied invitations without change. They just don't understand it. So we can't be too hard on them. They simply illustrate a truth that's true all around us. Well, I think there's several applications we could make from all of this. Obviously, one application would be uh, that we're reminded Jesus is the bread of life and provides all that we need. He can supply our every need. He supplies not just the bare necessities of life, but an overabundance. His supply is limitless. His provision is endless. So we ought never be afraid to ask anything big of our big God, should we? The songwriter said, there shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing sent from the Savior above. There shall be showers of blessing, precious, reviving again over the hills and the valleys, sound of abundance of rain. Showers of blessing. Showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. 
God told Jeremiah, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. Get a picture of those seven baskets. Get a picture of it in your mind. Baskets larger than laundry baskets. Man-sized baskets overflowing with the leftovers from his provision. Get that picture in your mind. And don't be afraid to ask things of God. Don't be afraid to ask big things. He's not going to run out of supplies. He's not. He is indeed our Jehovah Jireh, our God who provides. Well, I, I see another application here, and it's perhaps less appealing. Perhaps you're one who finds all this amusing. Perhaps you're one who counts yourself among those who, like the Pharisees, uh, just think yourself a little too enlightened to believe this stuff. There are those. I think you need to think about this, friend. Just as Jesus left them and departed, he will soon turn his back on you. If you come to the end of your life still in that state, you will close your eyes here. You will wake up the next moment in eternal hell. You will be there forever. You will never get out. There will not be another moment of joy. There will be no more happiness. There will be no health, no peace, no wealth. There will be only sorrow, regret, remembrance, agony. You see, Jesus stands ready to save you right now. He stands with his arms outstretched saying, if you will but accept me now, you don't have to think about that. You don't have to worry about that. Scripture says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so you can believe now. You can receive him now. You can call out and ask for the gift of salvation now and, and be saved forever. But continue to reject like the Pharisees. And he will reject you. One third application, and with this I'm done. And this one is especially uh, meaningful to me as a pastor because none of those, none but those who have experienced it can know how it feels sometimes to preach and preach and preach and preach and not necessarily see uh, the visible results you'd like to. Sermon after sermon, uh, invitation after invitation, little changes seen. It's discouraging. And it's not just preachers who experience that sort of thing. Uh, I've witnessed to one particular individual for years. One person. He is, uh, uh, he, he, to this day, I've never seen him bow his head and trust Jesus as his Savior. Witnessed to him for years. I was saved when I was 12 years old. I believe I've been witnessing to him ever since. Don't ask me how many years that is. It's too many for me to add up. It was a long time ago. There are times that I actually think this person is like the Pharisees and is just absolutely obstinately refusing to believe. But then there are other times when I'll have a conversation with him and I realize it's not true. He just doesn't understand. You probably know somebody like that. Somebody who, even though they might want to understand, just doesn't. There's no obstinate refusal in them, just confusion and a lack of understanding. And so I take hope in how Jesus dealt with these disciples here. He didn't give up. Notice he walked away from the Pharisees. He did not give up on his disciples. In spite of their cosmic level of dullness here, 
He did not walk away. He kept on teaching. He kept on preaching until they got it. He ramped up his rhetoric just a little bit here. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, I'm a little amused as I think about how he spoke here. I can hear his voice rising just a little bit as he reminds them, Don't you remember me feeding 5,000? And how many baskets were collected? Don't you remember me feeding 4,000? And how many large baskets were collected? And I can just hear his voice reaching fever pitch when he says, How is it that you do not understand? But he did not give up. You see, Jesus rejected the Pharisees who rejected him, but he patiently dealt with the disciples whose lack of faith sprang from their genuine struggle to understand. He never gave up on them. And we can't give up on those we witness to either. 